if you watch the world's best performers, everything doesn't really work. They, they, if, you, if you watch all the people who sprint sub 10 seconds, they look incredibly similar. Now, there is obviously different nuances. An amazing track coach will be able to pick out the little details. But for the most part, they all look pretty similar because the time constraints again. So as time constraints increase, our body becomes more and more simple and it has to become simple. It can't coordinate all these movements. So it goes to these similar patterns again and again. Hello and welcome to the Physical Preparation Podcast. I'm your host, Mike Robertson, and I'll be joining the line later today by David Gray. Now, before we jump into this week's episode, I want to give you a quick recap of the week that was, what is going on in my neck of the woods. It feels a little bit like Groundhog's Day around here as summer goes, lots going on. But first and foremost, hope you had an amazing Father's Day. If you're a dad yourself, congrats. Hopefully it was awesome. Uh, If not, hopefully you got some time with dad. Things were pretty low key here, which was great. Jess actually hired uh, the neighbor kid to mow the yard. So that was maybe the best part of my entire weekend because it was like something like 85 degrees, but it felt like it was like 95 or 96. So that was very, very thoughtful of her. Loved that. Uh, Took the kids to the pool. Again, it was smoking hot. So I figured that would be a good day to do that. They had a blast. Grilled out. I felt like we checked all of the, uh, the dad boxes that day. So awesome Father's Day all in all. That really was the weekend in a nutshell. I mean, people were asking me uh, on Monday, like, oh, what did you do last weekend? And I literally, other than Sunday, couldn't remember. So pretty low key, but also A-OK with that because the weeks are very busy. Lots of coaching going on right now. I feel like this is definitely my prime time of the year because I've got, again, college kids back. I've got my NBA guys in. I just have a broad range of people. I love it. I love getting in there and working with people. I feel like I'm getting better every day. I feel like they're getting better every day. And I mean, that's what keeps it interesting, right? 21 years in, if you're not continuing to challenge yourself, you're not continuing to evolve, it probably wouldn't be very exciting. But that's why I enjoy it so much because I feel like not only are they getting better, but I'm getting better along with them. So that's kind of what's going on. Uh, One other thing I wanted to mention, a little promo for it here in a minute, but the topic of... Our conversation today between David and I is all about knee pain, and I don't know what it is, but I've had a ton of people here lately that I've been working with either coming off seasons or people that I've started to work with remotely, people that are doing consults because they want to work remotely that have knee issues. And so this is something that, if you know, way back in the day with the whole bulletproof knees thing, I was very passionate about, dealt with my own knee stuff. So that's something I'm working on now as well is just trying to figure out different ways and different strategies to help people because having dealt with it myself, it sucks. But at the same time, I think if you've got the right training, if you have the right model, if you've got the right tactics and strategies, you can really nip this thing in the bud. So excited to work with more people about that. Uh, Again, that's kind of what the whole promo and mid-roll are about. But man, like I said, short and sweet today, not a ton new going on in my neck of the woods. I hope everything is going well for you. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll jump into this awesome episode with my guy, David Gray. Are you tired of struggling with sore or achy knees? Is knee pain keeping you from performing the activities you enjoy, either in the gym or just in life? And would you like to build a set of pain-free and healthy knees once and for all? If so, let's talk about my Bulletproof Knees online coaching program. You see, almost 15 years ago, I released my Bulletproof Knees Manual as a resource to help people restore their knee function and get back to living their lives. And even though people were still purchasing the manual and getting great results up to a year or two ago, I decided to take it off the market because it no longer reflected my current approach to knee health and knee training. But it seems like lately I don't go a single day without coming across someone who is in or has had knee pain. Some are elite level athletes in the NBA, MLS, or NFL who need to perform at the highest level day in and day out. Others are simply gen pop folks who want to train pain-free or be able to play with their children or their grandkids. And that's why I'm taking my Bulletproof Knees coaching program and I'm taking it on. Because when done well, this is a scalable training system 
that can be applied to virtually anyone regardless of their goals. Now keep in mind, just because I have principles that underpin this system, this is not some cookie cutter program where everyone gets the same watered down training template. When you train with me, you're getting a customized and tailored training program that is geared towards your body and helping you achieve your goals. So if you're interested in getting your knees moving and feeling great again, please send me an email at mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com with the words bulletproof knees coaching in the subject line. I'll get back to you with all the details and we can get started as soon as you're ready. But please don't wait as I'm only taking a select number of clients in this program. Again, send that email to mike at robertsontrainingsystems.com with the words bulletproof knees coaching and we'll get started ASAP. David Gray is the CEO of David Gray Rehab. Originally an athlete himself, he was plagued with pain and injuries and became very frustrated with the traditional solutions that were being offered. Deciding to take matters into his own hands, David spent over 10 years traveling the world, learning from some of the best minds in the industry. It became very clear to him that the traditional rehab model of isolated stretching and strengthening was a very poor and inefficient way of helping people. David has developed his own unique methods of helping people with their pain and movement, and now he works with clients from all walks of life. In this show, David and I have an awesome discussion around knee pain and knee health. We talk about the need for everything in the system to do its job versus just focusing on the injured area. We talk about the role of active versus passive motion and why someone might look great on the table and often when they actually stand up and move around. We talk about the differences between focal and distributed loading and which is superior for long-term health. And last but not least, we talk about why the sagittal plane is important, but why he's such a staunch believer in getting people into the frontal plane early in their training. There's a ton of great info in this episode, and I know you're going to love it. But enough for me. Let's do this. David, man, thanks so much for coming on the show here today. Really excited to chat with you a little bit. Could you start by just telling us a little bit about yourself? Thanks for having me, Mike. I'm excited for it. Um, I've heard a lot of good things about you in the past. I know our past our paths haven't really crossed, but um, it's it's nice to connect and come on. So a little bit about myself. I'm um, I'm in Ireland, as people can probably hear. I'm a <laughs> kind of I'm I'm a I guess I guess a neuromuscular physical therapist, but I kind of fall been saying a lot on podcasts recently I don't I don't love using that term because I just fall under like I work with movement and kind of especially re in the rehab world but there's crossover between like just performance rehab pain worlds and I suppose as we go along everyone is probably those words are just colliding together yes and it all comes back to probably just really working people working with people making them stronger really good movement and the same principles apply, I think, for the most part, regardless of where you fall on that spectrum. It's just about stressing people and nudging them forward another yep. inch at a time. And that probably doesn't change regardless of rehab or performance. So they're really the same thing, I think. But but yeah, I work with a couple of different types of population. One is like a very elite athlete who usually that kind of tends to be a bit more of a consultancy role where they are, they're maybe a little bit stuck and they're in the rehab process or they've gotten to a point or they're not quite making progress from where they want to be in terms of getting back from injury or probably more and more it's it's turning into they're just at a point in their season or whatever and they there's a little niggle there and it's not really stopping them from playing but they want to feel a little better and move a bit better so there's a lot of that going on at the moment and more and more is probably going going down that route and um i really enjoy that but then i also get to work on the complete other end of the spectrum where it's just like anyone who i think anyone who is interested in the work that they do and in theory wants to feel and move better hopefully that's the outcome but uh, in theory they want to feel and move better and and just feel better regardless of of who they are that's we, we get to work with a lot of people on that on that end as well and um people we have a couple of programs and stuff like that for where people can kind of get a taste of stuff so lots of different things going on but which which i enjoy to be honest yeah no i'm the same way i like to have a lot of a lot of irons in the fire so to speak so you know with that being said what led you to the world of physical preparation what got you excited about all of this I was very unexcited about it for a long time, to be honest, because um, because I was so injured for so long. So I probably have a similar story to a lot of people, I would say, where I love training. I love t- trying to be an athlete, definitely not the best athlete, but 
trying to play at a relatively high level and probably probably I was making the best of myself at one stage as a Gaelic footballer in Ireland so we have a couple of Irish sports and I was playing them at a, a decent level I would say and um, I just kept getting injured and just so frustrated with the advice I was gi- being given again and again and, and kind of just I kind of learned by very much by doing and and that's that's how I learned in the beginning and and I, w- I was just trying things and figuring out things and playing around with things and traveling around and meeting different people and trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. And eventually I kind of, not that, not that my body move feels or moves amazing or I don't think that journey probably ever ends where you're always trying to make it a bit better, but it got to the point where I was starting to feel good and figure out some things that worked, I think. And then just not, it was kind of a natural progression from there to start to help other people from there. I love it. I love it. Then last but not least, talk to me about kind of your journey and your pathway from being this injured athlete, you're trying to figure some pieces out to where you're at now. So like, give us your career arc. It's an interesting (laughs) career arc. (laughs) It's all over the place. It's probably depending on what day you ask me, I'll, I'll give you a different answer. So I was, I was, I was in Australia. I went to travel Australia for, and I lived in Sydney for about almost three years. And I came back and I was working in um, my brother's gymnastics gym when I came back. So I got really big into the kind of calisthenics world and gymnastics world. And cause I really thought at that stage, like mobility was the answer. Like not, not that it's not the answer, sorry, but more like looking at gymnasts and that kind of movement world that was developing and like Ido Portal and all these people, I was saying, if they can move their bodies in those ways, they must feel really, really good. And I've since learned that that's not necessarily the case. And I, I, I probably actually felt a lot better when I was tighter in my body which is which is an interesting thing but I've, I've since learned that maybe like loaded stretching and all that stuff there's caveats to it and there's a time and a place for it and um yeah so I started working in the gymnastics world coaching kids and stuff like that and then working more in the more in the slowly starting to work with people in the movement space and just playing around with their movement and creeping into the biomechanics world and then um physical therapy started using a little bit I actually went the opposite way to every, to most people they usually go I'm all hands-on and now I start to move away from manual therapy and yeah. I actually kind of started with a love of movement and then I was like maybe there's something in this kind of hands-on stuff as well yep. and I started to play around with that a little bit and I've gone, probably gone back away from that again but I do see value in it at a certain point for a certain person and then yeah I just I, I started to travel to taught a couple of workshops around the world and and then COVID probably accelerated it much faster than COVID really like as much as I don't like to say COVID was probably pretty good to us to be honest right. because right because we were big on the on in the online space I would say we were one of the only like very few people in the world were doing online rehab at the time I would say even 12 months ago like very very few were doing that online appointments to help you with your pain and we were doing that because just because the demand was there people were asking me and then and then um it really accelerated when I released the program then that because it was just like, right, I have, I have a waiting list for three months to get in with me now to, to do an appointment. So I'll just, what do I want every single client to be able to do before they come to me? And I just put that down on a sheet of paper and said, here's a program you can buy. And it just kind of exploded from there. And like 5,000 people have done that first program now. So not, I don't, I don't want to make this into a, like a sales pitch for the program, sure. but it's a big part of that evolution, I suppose, yeah. of of the reason maybe why I'm talking to you now as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, as I was going through the Instagram, I mean, I remember seeing, I don't remember the date stamp, but like, oh, a thousand people bought it. And then next thing you know, it was like 5,000. I was like, wow, that's (laughs) that, that uh, hockey stick pretty quick. So that's awesome, man. So here's where I want to start with this, because I love getting an idea of somebody's kind of overarching thought process. So if you had to give your elevator pitch to a potential client or a fellow coach, how would you describe that overarching philosophy or your big rocks when it comes to rehab? How many floors are we going on the elevator? <laughs> hey, man, you take it as far as you want to go, man. <laughs> elevator pitch. My my thing is always just get everything to do its job, like get everything in the body moving well 
and then clean off like some of those big rocks that are just obvious there like this thing just doesn't look like it's moving right at all and or like there's something in the injury history here that's just poking out its ugly head and it's saying this was never dealt with and it's having repercussions now down the line so an elevator pitch is just like yeah i will i will you have an ankle problem i will do specific stuff for your ankle but also like there's a hip there from three years ago that you just are you tore your hamstring three years ago and it's very obvious to me that it's not it's not tolerating any load and so why would the nervous system be happy to put load in that area it's just gonna it's just gonna find different ways around it and that's a really good thing it's a great thing it helps us solve problems until it's not a good thing anymore so just getting everything to do its job i think that's that there's there's a lot of principles and in in terms of how i how i approach that yeah but in terms of an elevator pitch like what what would you like everyone to be able to do like we have all these bones and joints and tissues and we move in a certain way for a reason or we should be moving in a certain way those ways to me are relatively obvious i know people talk about variability and having all these options available to us we should have options but at the end of the day our gait cycle or a good gait cycle looks very similar to another person's good gait cycle you know so yeah. and, and the joints have the bones are shaped in a certain way that allows for certain movements and they, certain movements definitely takes take priority i think so variability is huge to me but quality movement is not necessarily all about variability either it's about being really good at specific movements and those movements usually come back to the gait cycle i think yeah, I love that. And I love the simplicity of that too, right? Like everything needs to be able to do its job. It doesn't, it's not like really like crazy or like out there. It's very simple, but it's something I think most people could relate to as well, right? Because we've all seen that person like you alluded to, like, oh man, like they have a knee problem, but man, their hip is just really like locked up or their ankle that they sprained 10 years ago and never rehab correctly. And now they wonder why they have knee pain. I love that idea. Yeah. yeah it is it's super simple and and sometimes when i talk about that people start to think about like oh you're you you wouldn't do isolation work or 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 you know you wouldn't just treat the area i, I sit on the fence on that i'm happy to if someone has knee pain like get on a leg extension machine make that quad stronger right but it just fits into the whole i'm just taking a piece of the puzzle and saying right i, I need to I, I think i need to isolate that in this instance and now i'm interested in how that fits back into the whole rather than just saying i'm i'm just an isolation guy or i'm just an integration guy i just i just want to have as many tools as possible and try and plug them back in but a lot of that does come from what I would like to think is very strong clinical reasoning. And it's not just throwing shit against the wall. And, and here's an exercise that I use with someone with knee pain. It should right. come back to an assessment and also like their injury history and, and just talking to the person and, and tweaking things. But also having said that there's a reason why that program works, works very well for a lot of people. It's, it's because yeah, like the exercises are kind of the assessments as well. Like if you can't move your pelvis, if you can't if you can't shift your hips, if you can't get frontal pain motion, you probably just need to learn how to do that. It's, <laughs> it doesn't have to be that complicated, you know. Right. So I'm just I just want to have as many options available, but still, I think most people's training is is probably more similar than than different up until up until a certain point at least. I love it. I love it. So. In full disclosure to everyone that is listening in, I had this discussion with David before we, we kind of came on the show, but I really struggled to narrow the scope of this episode because if you look at his Instagram page, there's so much content there. Like we could talk about hips or pelvises or pelvi, whatever it is, backs, Achilles. Like there were so many angles that we could have taken, but we kind of decided that we're both passionate about knees. So that's kind of the, the deep dive that we're going to look at today. So David, with that being said, when somebody comes to you and they say they have knee pain, what immediately pops into your mind? I would start with a broad assessment, really. So like very, very broad and just assess the person as a whole and see like just just like we spoke about. And then it's very it's very the knee is cool because it's quite a simple joint in one way and, and not in another way. But it can do a couple of things. It can it can flex and extend and externally rotate and internally rotate. Yep. Probably can probably hopefully can't do much more than that or else we're in trouble. <laughs> right. So so and and we know that like 
those movements ride along with pronation of the foot or supination of the foot and then kind of external rotation of the hip, internal rotation of the hip and, and the full body really. So we know those movements right along. So just from a very generic biomechanical assessment, like what movements are they actually missing or not accessing? Not because necessarily all of the time, and I think this is a point that's not necessarily understood or considered, not that passively they can't access them. Maybe they can, maybe it does like a, a tight feel or whatever you want to call it, but what way are they set up so that when they actually go and move, do they have the time to access these movements? Because if I'm so far or if I'm a little bit more towards one end of the spectrum, then when I go and move, there's time constraints on me. So I'm not going to access my pronation or my supination because I'm already so far stuck on the other end of the spectrum. So time constraints. And and that's where I think the static posture where people don't really like obviously in the pain world and posture world, those two worlds, like you're, you're, you're canceled if you talk about pain and posture these days. <laughs> right. And, and for good reason, because there's a lot of people, you nocebo know, people and, and saying a lot of stuff that's, that's really not right and not helpful. But at the same time, if you rest in a certain position, if you rest with a massively supinated foot, then when you go and walk, it's not that that posture, foot posture is bad. It's just, am I actually going to be able to access the opposite end of that spectrum to load the tissue or load different tissues in a different way? So if you're interested in the variability world, I think you have to be interested in the static, static posture world because one helps you access the other. So that's, that's some things that are going through my mind in the beginning and, and just gentle, basic ranges of motion at the knee joint, the hip, the feet, the ankles. And then some load tolerance stuff. So I'm always very interested initially, at least in the um, in the more coordination rather than strength in the beginning. And I want to see how people coordinate their movement and it, like intermuscular coordination. So mm. a lot of people on, on Instagram will see me talking about the importance of the coordination between the calf and the hamstring. I think that's a little bit overlooked as well, because... I can have an isolation and my, my calf can be very strong. My hamstring can be very strong, but how they actually coordinate together is really the key, I think, to kind of not, not necessarily pain. I need to be careful when I talk about pain, but a little bit, yes, and also good movement because when, if you think about a brain that wants to feel safe a lot of the time, and you think about muscles firing together, then before my foot even hits the floor, I need to have pretension in certain muscles mm -hmm. because effectively my the floor is going to be hitting my foot and force is going to be coming up through my foot and all the way up into the knee joint and all the way further up the chain. So can I coordinate my movement so that I can get pretension around the, the lower limb and around the knee joint so that actually the force can be dispersed elsewhere? That's a very important question that I'm asking myself and if they can't, you can probably understand why someone, why a brain might be saying, okay, we're being overloaded here. I'm going to, I'm going to kind of have a little bit of pain in this area because I don't really trust you to coordinate your movement in a way that can protect us. So I'm going to put, I'm going to have pain as a, as a protective mechanism instead. So that coordination of the calf and the hamstring and the quad, I think is so important. And that's like you see Franz Bosch talk about that, Dave O'Sullivan talk about that, that co those co-contractions. It's not that we need co-contractions all of the time around the joint, but I usually start there because that's almost like a safety blanket that I can throw over someone and say, yeah, you can get co-contractions, which means you can mean you can stabilize that knee joint. Mm -hmm. And from there, so I almost give you over protection at the knee joint when you when you're when you move. And from there I'll peel it back and then work on right. When, when your midfoot hits the floor, we need those co-contractions. But as you go on to that, as you, as you start to go more towards propulsion, you need that knee extension now. Yeah. But when your foot hits the floor, I don't want knee extension or I don't want knee flexion. I just want, I just want it to, the joint to be stabilized so that my hip can work and all of these other things. So that's, that's some big things that I'm looking for. I probably said a lot there, but those are some, those are some initial thoughts that are going through my mind. No, that's awesome. And I think there's a couple points that I noted that I think are really important. Number one is this idea of distributing load. You don't hear a lot of people talking about that, but I think a lot of the itises and osises and things that we come up with are people that are very focal 
and where they put load versus being mm-hmm. able to distribute it throughout their system. Yeah. So that's brilliant. And then I also love the fact because look, and this is my own bias here, but I think I've gone through all the phases. I just love static posture assessments and I love table assessments and I loved movement assessments. And then at one point I just realized, well, like, why can't I love all of them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, cause you get, like you said, there's things that you can see like static posture may not be the be all end all, but if you see somebody and they've got these massive glaring things, it behooves you to dig deeper and say, okay, this is their resting posture. Can they move in and out of this? And I think that's really critical. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Like that's I, I, exactly as you said, I think all of those assessments have a, you should be able to, you should be able to piece the puzzle together. I think a lot of the time their pain is complex and unpredictable. So For not sure. necessarily because I can just say something to someone and, and they can, I can say, oh, it looks like your knee is messed up. And they're like, oh. I actually felt sore today. I didn't realize that. <laughs> right. um, so like you have to be careful with that. But like the the injury history, the movement assessment, the static posture assessment, the passive assessment, and then like load tolerance testing, usually those things start to correlate together. And if if one thing is telling me one thing and then something else tells me something completely different, like then I'm like, okay, like I'm 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 almost trying to prove myself wrong as I go along and I'm saying no that's that's not adding up like I think I'm maybe I'm on the right track here mm-hmm. I really think things more than more than we are taught like things should should be taught to actually or think not taught but things actually just add up people's stories start to make sense when you start to see that right a year ago I start I started to develop chronic back pain and then you look back through their injury history there's nothing there and then you ask them okay, well, were you like, did anything stressful happen in your life around that time? And they say, well, yeah, my, my, I, I went through a massive divorce or something like just a month right. before that. So like, you just have to dig deep and know what questions to ask, but things do add up. And then just on your low tolerance thing. So obviously with, with tendinopathies and pain and stuff, the first thing you're going to check is like, was there a spike in load? That's, right. that's That should go without saying, right? Yep. So load is so important. Was there a spike in load? That's always the first thing we're going to check. But load tolerance, I think, is more than just managing your volume or managing your, managing your whatever you want, term you want to put on it. It's more than that because the best people, the best athletes – they can they can train a lot more than me definitely right and that's because they've developed that over the years and and yeah the other tissues are very good but also load to- load tolerance and load management is can i spread the load across the system as well so yep. it's not just how much can my patellar tendon actually handle in terms of force it's how much can i actually disperse away from my patellar tendon yep. so i think there's two ways of making someone stronger are making a tissue stronger, quote unquote. One is load the tissue and make it stronger. Two is make sure that that tissue doesn't have to handle as much force by making sure everything else is doing its job. And that second point is never spoken about when it comes to load tolerance. It's always, it's always, oh, you have Achilles tendinopathy, you did too much. Mm-hmm. Well, you did. Maybe you didn't do too much if your if your foot could actually do a really good job and you can get that spring out of your midfoot yeah. rather than always always staying supinated or always staying pronated, you know? So that, I think that's, that's really important for me. Yeah, no, that's brilliant, man. Okay. So when you're assessing somebody's knee and and hearkening back to the days where, you know, you just, Oh, you've got a knee problem. Let's just look, let's take a look at that knee. What is your knee assessment look like now? You mentioned static posture a little bit. You met, you, you mentioned some coordination, co-contraction. What are you looking Mm -hmm. at? Yeah, passive on the on the table. So knee 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 uh, knee extension, knee flexion, and then a little bit of check tibial rotation. Check usually with hands on. I'll just check the foot. But like you, you, you really don't have to even do these things. Like the more and more I've learned to do online sessions, you're kind of seeing that in their movement assessment anyway. Like if you yeah. check if you check a squat if you check a full deep squat or a split squat, can they get full knee flexion there? You know, mm-hmm. like it's, it's, you know, it might be limited by the ankle or something like that, but there's so many ways of checking that. And, and a lot of the time, these things are not structural issues. It's just protective tone around the area. So someone can't actually get full knee flexion. It's just, it's just the brain or the nervous system is, is, is putting a lot of protective tone and saying, no, you know, I'm not, I'm not letting you, I don't trust you to go into that position. So obviously 
like we we would like to figure out is it is it is it more structural blockage there or is it is it something that can change quite quickly and usually within a couple of couple of smart exercises you'll start to see that that range has has started to change it doesn't mean it will stick around for for the rest of their life but it does mean there's potential to change there yeah. which is really cool i think and and it also gives people a lot of hope that oh look how quickly that can change my nervous system my body is quite plastic here so just just checking passively the knee joint passively the hip joint and then basic assessment in standing so rotation left and right if it's the right knee when they rotate left i want to see a right foot that pronates i want to see a knee that flexes a little bit and it is going to externally rotate relatively. I don't want to get too detailed because somebody yeah. sometimes sometimes on on a, on a podcast versus a video, it's it's, it's, it's hard. Tricky, yeah, but yeah, just um, and different types of squats, and then um, so I usually put them into like a foam roller bridge. Like I don't know if you've seen any of that on um, on my Instagram. Basically, they're lying on their back. That'd be more a load tolerance test. I'll put their midfoot on both sides on a foam roller. With a decent around amount of knee extension, I'm not good with degrees, but like the knees are a little bit bent. Yeah, I'll just get them almost like a hook lying hamstring bridge, but with the midfoot on the foam roller instead of the heels on a box or something. Okay, and then I'll just get them to lift their hips off the floor in a little small tuck, just a couple of inches off the floor, and I'll get them to lift up one leg, and that's 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 more midfoot. Then we're looking at more coordination, intra intramuscular coordination, because I'll ask them to press down through the midfoot and drive their heel up towards the sky, and that's going to give me like a lot of act activation and activity through the plantar flexors the soleus and, and then we're going to get kind of that synergy at the at the calf and the hamstring yeah and then i'm going to try and keep the glute out of it typically by just staying a little bit off the floor rather than going all the way up and right. rib cage position and all that stuff and usually people will cramp there within <laughs> about five seconds and and you start to think right like when your foot hits the floor you need to coordinate this movement at way more speed and with way more force and i just put you into a running specific position on the floor and you can't last for five seconds yeah. that, that's that's a big clue as to like okay this is something that we want to clean up you know yeah now like that's just lying on the back like obviously getting people up into standing and stuff like that is is, is important but really if they can't do that then they don't have that much of a right to be complaining about that that when i run my, my knee is sore you know right right I love so, that. A lot of, lot of stuff there. I love it. And one thing I want to go back to, you said very early, like when a lot of us were coming up and and maybe this was me because I didn't have like the physical therapy background, but so many of us were just taught, oh, knees, you know, they flex and they extend and you make that great point. Well, you know, when they, they're flex, they should IR and ER too. And one of the big things that we find, I'm going to talk to you about this in here in just a second, but like this, this lack of tibial IR. And a lot of people that struggle with knee stuff. So they don't have IR, which means they're probably not going to have full knee flexion, you know. Uh, so I think that's something that we're always conscious of, too. Like, because we'll get some people and they're like, oh, yeah, my right knee kind of hurts. And we'll check their knee flexion. And they're like minus seven. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, well, that's a problem. And, you know, their knees kind of straight and then their toes are pointing out towards right field. So. Yeah, that, like it's 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 such a common compensation isn't it like yes. that 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 just it's it's a fake it's a fake way of them accessing pronation usually instead of yes. instead of instead of getting that nice tibial internal rotation and femoral internal rotation the femur will start to come in but the the, the, the whole lower leg has externally rotated as a way of getting their weight dumping it into that yep. side and, and this brings up a big conversation because there's a whole world of people out there and there's some very shady methods i would say at the moment that are demonizing pronation right. as a way of selling and marketing their their system but just because they don't understand it so they will say that pronation is completely bad because that's where knee injuries happen and i would say you don't actually even understand pronation because that what you're describing is not actually a pronation it's just a valgus of the knee and like a dumping of all my weight medial if i can even yes. get it medial yep so a good pronation is happening on top of an internal rotation of the tibia and an internal rotation of the femur and uh, I, I had a teacher of mine, Gary Ward, who was like very, very good at mapping out these movements of the joints and the gait cycle. And he just showed, he, he'd say that usually the femur should travel a little bit faster than the tibia. So I am left in knee external rotation, but 
it's only relative movement relative to both of those bones going into internal rotation. Okay. So I'm left, the femur moves a little bit faster into internal rotation. So I'm left in ER at the knee, but it's still IR of all the bones. They're all moving yeah. in that direction. The problem happens when the femur is moving into internal rotation and the tibia is not, or else the tibia is going into external rotation. That is a recipe for disaster, but that is not pronation. I don't think that is some other weird, wacky movement that you should probably shouldn't be able to do. Yeah. That's great. And it, it just comes back to the point we made kind of up top, like systemic movement, right? Mm-hmm. Like all the pieces need to be able to do what they need to be able to do. And if they're not, the body is a brilliant compensator. It will find a way to get the job done. It may just not be in the most optimal fashion. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll probably catch up at sooner, sooner rather than later, or not sooner rather than later. At some stage, it might catch up. Yeah. But even if it doesn't catch up, like why not have... It's not that we want perfect movement. We can never get that. And I've never seen that. And I never expect to see that. But I still want to chase something that like, you know, just just my I know I just want to nudge people myself and people towards here's a little bit better. Here's a little bit better. There's nothing wrong with what you're doing at the moment. It's great. It's helping you achieve a goal. It might it might be a little bit of an overused pattern, but it, it's it's very necessary if you couldn't compensate you may as well just lie on the floor and do nothing because that's how your body actually figures out and your brain ha- figures out how to move through the world but what's the harm in saying we're just going to nudge you towards a little bit better a little bit better a little bit better and it seems like everything else in the world people understand that that we can do that but when you talk about more optimal movement or good movement there's this argument that oh no everything works but it's it, if you watch the world's best performers, everything doesn't really work. They, they, if, you, if you watch all the people who sprint sub 10 seconds, they look incredibly similar. Now, there is obviously different nuances and an amazing track coach will be able to pick out the little details. But for the most part, they all look pretty similar. Yeah. And they all do very, very similar things in, in because they, the time constraints again. So as time constraints increase our body becomes more and more simple and it becomes it has to become simple it can't coordinate all these movements so it goes to these similar patterns again and again yep i love it man okay so in your experience what are so the what are some of the common denominators or biggest issues that lead to knee pain that's a good question i feel like you're hanging i feel like you're hanging me out to dry on that (laughs) not at all man Um, (laughs) Ah, good question. I think so. Low, lo, like we'll just say load is the first one. So, so for any physios that are listening, tearing their hair out, like yes, load is load is the first one. But if we just look at it, start to talk about like something outside of that that someone didn't spike their load. The co-contraction thing, I think, is massive. Like being able to get that knee knee stability. Now there is a question whether that comes from. I, so I can't get that. Is that coming from an inability to strike the foot well at the foot and actually move my weight and, and travel through the foot in a nice, efficient, rhythmical way? Or does it come from a lack of strength? So just tissue quality, like the calf, can that absorb enough force? Absorb probably isn't the right word, but the hamstring, the quads, all of these things. Or is it... Is it the bones aren't moving and in the right directions necessarily? Or if I'm running, like, can I not switch my hips very well? Or is my rib cage miles out in front? And so all of those things I just mentioned can't actually do a good job because I can't really get co-contractions if I don't get my body weight onto my midfoot. And I can't really strike at the midfoot if my ribs are flared and forward because I'm going to end up striking more towards the toes. So I don't know is the answer, but... To be honest, like if you really want to clean something up and want to clean something up for a long time, rather than just getting someone pain free for a week, you're probably going to have to deal with all of those things. So get them ribs moving, get that pelvis moving, the hip, make sure the foot can move well, the calf, like the soleus is so important to be able to absorb so much of that force. So I, but to, to be to, to to try and give for clarity's sake to give an answer to your question, I would always almost always chase co contractions early on with someone, so so give them that sense of knee stability, and then almost always I'm looking at something at the hip, 
And then almost always I'm looking at something at the foot, whether that's looking for more pronation or supination. Those are the those are the three big rocks I think that you need to you need to tackle for some for most people in general. And depending on the person, you might go for after more of one or the other. Yeah, no, I love that. And it, when you're t- talking through this, it's just amazing to me. I remember when I was like a graduate assistant. This was like 2000, 2001, and I'm hanging out and I'm watching somebody go through an ACL rehab. And literally 20 years ago, now granted, this is at like Ball State University, so maybe we weren't the pinnacle of rehab at the point. But I mean, literally, it was like knee rehab, do knee exercises. And that was it. And so now just thinking about how much our industry has evolved and, you know, it started with the knee and then we said, oh, we got to work our way out and we got to look at the foot and the ankle and we got to look at the hip to now where, you know, guys like you are at, it's such an integrated approach. It's like, yeah, let's look at the knee, but let's look at the entire system and how all these pieces fit together to make somebody move in a holistic pattern. And then like you alluded to as well, okay, look at the system, but don't throw out like some of that isolative type stuff because there could be merit or there could be value in that as well. Yeah, absolutely. Like tissue quality is a real thing. So just getting people like into old school bodybuilding type of exercises can be massive. Yep. It really can. Like, especially after, you know, especially after a surgery or any, any trauma like that, I have no problem. I'd rather someone lie down and do hamstring curls on a machine than the, some of the crappy Nordic curls that I see these days where people are just using their back extensors for everything. Yeah. I just, you know, like it doesn't have to be quote unquote functional if you're chasing tissue quality, just make that tissue really strong. But like, and I, I, I've learned this over the years because I've been exposed to so many athletes, like top, top athletes who come to me and they have the strongest Nordic curls in their entire squad by far, which is measured. Like they have all the data for it, but they keep tearing their hamstring and the pelvis you just look at them running and their pelvis is a mess they cannot get any control over the pelvis whatsoever and so the the hamstring is never going to be strong enough to do the job of the glute and the calf and everything else in the lower body and probably the abdominals as well and it's always being pulled into what i would call like a suboptimal length tension relationship now i can get like all things being equal, absolutely everything being equal. Let's say we have two people with the exact same strength of hamstring in all in eccentric, isometric, concentric. They have everything. Every single muscle is the exact same strength, and one runs with an one runs with an excessive anterior pelvic tilt, whatever excessive is. I don't know. Right. And one doesn't then the one that runs with an excessive anterior pelvic tilt, I think is more likely to get a hamstring injury because the hamstring is actually just being pulled on more. Yep. So at some stage we have like, but the research doesn't show that because how do you measure that? It's so hard. Right. It doesn't, it's starting to maybe creep out a little bit, but so, so right. I'm going to hedge my bets and say, right, I'm going to strengthen the hamstring. I might isolate it. I might do more coordinated work. I'm going to make sure that when you run, your running mechanics are solid. And a combination of those things can work rather than just just banking on one thing and then looking like a fool when it when it all breaks down again. Right, right. I love it, man. Okay, so you've determined a client or patient has something really general, right? Like anterior knee pain. Do you have any favorite exercises or positions you like to start them out in to kind of build them up? Yes, I do. So that bridge that I was, that test that I was talking about earlier, that's, that's yep. my, that's usually my first step. Anyone who's seen the program or Instagram or stuff, that's like kind of like the famous exercise there now that people <laughs> can't do. Now it's not that, it's not that you're going to have knee pain or have knee pain if you can't do it, like not at all. But if, if you have knee pain and you just can't do a, a, that, that foam roller bridge at all, then it's something I want them to be able to take off. So our gold standard there is like three sets of 45 seconds on, on, on that. And, and that's a very important milestone for people to hit. But even just getting a little bit better at that does, does really weird and incredible things for people's lower body and knees, especially. So that's, that's usually the first one. And then if we're talking about rehabbing someone from all the way from kind of from there, from nowhere back to sprinting, for instance, then we're usually going to be looking at some squatting variation, obviously, that I usually favor a more unilateral variation if I can. 
And then I usually try and get people to frontal plane movement as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. So I'm a, I'm a massive fan. I think, I think people don't get there now. So you, you do, as you know, like, and a lot of people know that you, you probably have to clean up their sagittal plane a bit first. Yep. You probably have no choice because their frontal plane will be a mess if you don't. But I get them to frontal plane so quickly. Whenever I can, I'll get them to frontal plane. And even if it's right, I'm stressing sagittal plane quite a bit. But I have a re- really low level. So I'm like up, up high, high or medium level on sagittal plane. And I have a low level frontal plane exercise at the same time. I'm introducing it. I'm getting their brain feeling, their body feeling, that shifting side to side. I think that alternation is massive. So I'll usually then increase the, like, the... And also, I should say, I, I bring in running specific drills very early in the, in the rehab process, as early as possible, just because even if you're not going to be running for three months, I still want you to feel your muscles working in those joint angles. So I don't know if you've seen Alex Natera's work. Yeah, run specific isometrics. I do a lot of that type of work. Just me, it might be a little bit lower level than, than, than he does it. And then we usually have running drills almost from day one. Like even if it's a single leg stand, like with a little bend in the knee and just balancing in that running specific position, or even if it's like a little bit of ankling where I'm just walking forward, but I'm having a little pop off the ankle. And just when I do that, I want to see the free side of the pelvis lifting up. So like I pop off my right ankle, my left side of my pelvis should kind of lift up into the air. And that's that hip lock position that Franz Bosch talks about a lot. I'll drill that and then we'll, we'll might bring that into more ankling or a skips or whatever. So I'm trying to bring in as much running specific stuff as I can while I'm still building the load and getting them used to just getting strong through the tissues. And then um, loads of hopping variations in three, three dimensions usually. And then just getting them into, into running. I don't tend to do too much like slow running, like jogging work for people with, with knee issues or any, any lower limb issues usually, because if you think about like what we're trying to achieve in the rehab process is a lot of stiffness around the ankle. Now, sometimes when I talk about that, people are like, you just spoke about how important mobility is. And now you're talking about stiffness. It's, it's, it's two kind of two different things. I need to be able to display that stiffness when my foot hits the floor and have, have those qualities in my body doesn't mean that when I lie down, I, I can't move and I'm really stiff through the tissues. Yep. So we're, we're usually trying to bring in a lot of stiffness qualities, reactive qualities from as early as possible. And then unfortunately, I see people getting on board with that stuff. So like low, low ground contact times in my plyometrics. But then when I go into my jogging, I'm like, okay, just plod for five miles and have the worst running mechanics in history and plod <laughs> along and I spent so long on the ground. So I usually kind of skip that phase and make sure they're doing a lot of really high level plyometric work and then put them into faster running rather than spending too much time in a jogging, plodding type of thing where they just undo everything we've worked on for the last, I don't know how long. Right, right. And I love just that whole mindset. I mean, essentially what you're saying there is you value quality over quantity, right? Yeah. Rather than going out and taking that, 5k five mile jog hey man let's go out and let's get some really high quality work in that's going to carry over to your sport it's probably going to give you a lot better return on your investment than like you alluded to just doing that sloppy long duration low intensity run yeah i think i think there's so many ways of getting conditioning in yes and yeah of course like you're going to get you you might return to sport a little bit less fit it's tiny bit less fit than if you did all these jogs but also your mechanics are going to be way more efficient so you're actually not going to be using as much energy and you're you're going to be able to hit top speed a bit better your change of direction is going to feel better because we drill that stuff we got specific with that stuff and we we worked on those those reactive qualities again and again so if you look at a million athletes like the ones who can plot are not the ones on your television. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah. they are, they are very reactive, very strong athletes, very like coordinated. You would usually see a lot of rhythm and efficiency in their movement. Those are words that I would use. And a lot of people in the rehab process, a lot of plodding running does not display any of those qualities. I don't think. No, you're absolutely right. So last one here, talk to me about return to play with regards to knees and it's really a two-parter number one what are we doing well and number two what can we continue to improve upon 
So I suppose some of, we spoke a lot about the, I would say what I just what we just spoke about kind of is a return a, a rough return to play yep, process. Sure. Um, so just a, a general return to play process, and what we're doing well is we're starting to look at the person as a whole. I think what we what we could probably do better is. Now, people, I have to be careful saying this, but like starting to you see a lot of people bringing in the water bags and the perturbations into into the into that world. I really, really like that stuff. I just think we need to make sure it fits into the system and the principles and when I should use it and what I'm trying to achieve from it. So that 3D motion and perturbations and like I have a little twist in the air and different things like that. Yeah, I think we're getting there and I think we're starting to understand that time constraints are important and environmental constraints are important rather than just saying, okay, go and get as strong as you can with your squat. Now go and run. I think we can get a bit more specific in, in the weight room than that, I think. And we can we can use different constraints. We can use those things like water bags. We can use medicine balls. We can use queuing we can get people out of the sagittal plane and we can get them back to their sport, whatever it might be, presuming it's like a field sport or something where there's someone else in contact with them. The first time some, the first time they step back on the field is not the first time that they felt a perturbation or, or some kind of environmental constraint come upon them. So again, like, we can get we can get very strong at squatting while we do this we don't have to choose one or the other you know yes yeah that's a great point and it's refreshing to hear that because i think too long return to play was all about strength and and definitely in the last five years you've seen this massive shift towards hey contraction types are important change of direction is important just getting people back up to the speeds and the velocities that they're going to play in a match are Every bit, if not more important than just having a strong knee, so to speak. Absolutely. And and the pendulum kind of, I almost see it swinging a bit too far sometimes now that, yeah. you know, like the sensory motor drills and all that stuff is so important. But people and, and how we learn to cue that then is like a lot of internal cueing. Like, can you feel your hamstring? Can yep. you feel your XYZ? Like that's that's fine at a very low level. But as soon as speed of movement increases, I can't talk about feel so much anymore. Yep. I need to, there's an end goal. My eyes see, see something and, and my body self-organizes around getting myself to that goal. So we, we also, I think we, and, and this is something I'm constantly working on and definitely need to improve a lot on, but my, my cues, how they need to change when speed of movement changes as well. Yeah. I'm focusing on more of a, more of the, the, the task and the outcome rather than how the body is organizing. Yeah. So like, if I can, if I can set them up in a position or set up an exercise in a certain way, then most of my cues should become irrelevant. Yeah. If I've ticked the boxes along the way, so I think that's that's very very important, and and that that starts to be that starts to create athletes that are like that that start to really understand what they're doing, and they don't need you to baby them as much anymore. Yeah, for sure. Okay, my guy. Big question time. If you could alter the space-time continuum and give young David Gray one piece of advice, what would it be? Good question. I don't know. Well, <laughs> I, I, I bought, I bought, I go back a week. I bought some cryptocurrency last week and it crashed today. So uh, I would have said, hold on a week. Yeah. Um, and buy the dip. If I could go back a bit further than that, can I, can I, am I so am I allowed two answers? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> So, so don't buy the crypto yet. Wait. <laughs> and then the second one is I have like a, an everlasting kind of a weird regret where like I never got a chance to come anywhere near fulfilling my own potential as an athlete, whichever, whatever, whatever that potential was, it certainly wasn't going to be amazing, but just get the, to get the best out of myself and despite learning and, and like I have the career I have. And I'm talking to you now because of that, because it forced me to try and figure out some things. But if I could go back and tell myself, still go and learn this stuff. Don't mess yourself up as much along the way. That that might be nice, but I don't think that's possible to, you can't have your cake and eat it too. So I've learned a lot of, a lot of very valuable lessons by actually messing up a lot in the first place. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, frustrating that had had to happen to us but i think the the people that we work with 
they get rewarded by it, right? Because we know the things that we've learned, the mistakes that we've made. We know that ultimately we can take better care of them because of the things that we dealt with personally, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Literally was having that conversation with someone recently, a, a young guy who was 21 years old, a Gaelic footballer who had, who had patellar tendinopathy. And I was like, that's, I think, around 20 years old, I developed it. It was in my right knee. It was almost an, an identical story. Yeah. And we pretty much got rid of it in about six to eight weeks for him. And I wow. said, I, I had this issue for eight years. Oh I could hardly walk down the stairs. And uh, like he, he was, he was over the moon with it, but I was just, I was absolutely thrilled with him, but I was just thinking back of like those so many years where I was like, I can't go for a walk with my girlfriend today because I won't be able to actually play my sport tonight because I can't do both of these things. Oh my, my knee gosh. can only take a certain amount of load. So exactly that. I think they benefit and other people, hopefully other people benefit then as well for not just our clients, but like conversations like this are all the amazing guests that you have on. They can take little lessons the best way to learn a lesson is obviously to make a mistake because you yeah. won't you won't take it serious until you until you do but yeah. um there's definitely a lot of brilliant people out there that you can learn a lot from and it's it's it's, it's a more efficient way i would say yeah absolutely it's definitely less painful right yeah. <laughs> all right my guy last but not least we've got our lightning round so six fairly short questions but your answer can be as long or short as you like all right number one what's your career highlight so far as a clinician Oh, this is not a lightning answer because I'm not sure. I should have, <laughs> I should have, I should have prepped. Career highlight as a as a clinician. Can I can I say the lower body basics program? Yeah, because that'll that that'll be my second one. So why don't you just talk about that and we'll just merge the two together, okay? Yeah. So like to have five thousand people do it around the world, but. To be honest, with the amount of people that share the program with others, it's probably like treble that. But right. I wish I could. I wish I could charge them all, but I can't. Right. But um, like there's been, and I can't. I can't post too much about this because there's, there is, there is discretionary or what I don't know whatever the word is. I I just can't talk too much. But there's some like of the world's best athletes that have done that program and some of the world's best coaches that have been using that program with organizations uh some of the biggest organizations in the world and it's 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 pretty cool for me to see that like i can see athletes that are on millions and millions of dollars a year using a program that i wrote on my couch during covid in in like an hour so um so that's probably been been the highlight so far and just seeing how many therapists and coaches have been adopting it and and like coming back to me and saying like i've changed changed like 10 clients lives that have had pain for x number of years and and they just use some of the drills in there and so that's been that's been pretty cool and pretty humbling that's awesome man i love it okay so that was one and two number three this one might be humbling but talk to me about the biggest mistake you've made as a clinician biggest mistake Biggest mistake is getting too involved with systems and methods. And I've probably made that mistake a few times over the years and thinking that like this one, that one person had the answer for me. Yeah. And that's a mistake. I won't name any names or any systems because it's not about, it's not about any particular person or system, but just thinking that I probably never thought about that, but I just thought about it like, oh, this this person has all the answers are like, but I probably made a couple of people into gurus over the years and I, I probably looking back, I regret that. And I'm always careful with people to say like people, you know, like sometimes people will send me messages saying like, oh my God, like you're, you're the best or you know everything. I'm like, no, no, please. <laughs> like just take whatever I say with a pinch of salt and, and like make sure you're doing your own research and looking at different perspectives here because yep. there's a very good chance I'm not right about anything. It's just like, they're just theories and, uh, you know, so it's probably it's probably getting too involved with systems and not just taking the principles from them sooner and saying, right, that works because this and this and, and now let's move on and find what else there is out there. I love it. I love it. Okay, number four. Best advice you'd give to someone who wants to be successful in the rehab world? Would say one one thing is you don't know what you don't know. So you have to, 
And you don't know probably what you can't feel yourself either. So you don't have to be the best athlete in the world, but you do. I, I, basically, it comes down to this. The, 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 some of the crappy things that you see therapists using that like very clearly do not work. They would not use those things with their clients if they used them on themselves and felt that they didn't work. Mm. And it would, be, it would be very clear to them that I'm not getting any lasting results and I'm not improving whatsoever by using these modalities. Now, some people would because they're unethical and they only want to make money and they don't care about anything else. But you have to test things on yourself. And you really like it's very hard to coach someone through something if I haven't actually played around with it myself and tried to see how it feels in my own body. Yep. Now, that's definitely not the only thing. I don't have to be, I don't have to be a world record squatter to coach a world record squatter in terms of here's your knee pain and I'm going to help you feel a bit better in a squat. But I probably want to have done a squat at some stage. Yeah, And I think, you know, I think that people are reading books and research papers and, and listening to podcasts, never putting anything into into practice themselves and then trying to coach it to others. And they're just they actually really don't have a clue what they're doing. So practice is really important, I think. And, and I actually see this in the in the teaching world. Now, I've seen some people, which is really weird, but I've seen some people like do courses and start to teach the courses them like like put their own spin out on and teach a course before they like and they don't even use that material practically they're saying mm-hmm. do this and this with your clients but i know that they actually when I, I know what they're doing in clinic and they're just needling people <laughs> so i would say practice practice as much as possible don't be afraid to make mistakes learn from as many cool people there's so much information out there and just just practice and learn that's it i love it Number five, best advice you'd give to a trainer, coach, or rehab professional who wants to create better social media content? Consistency, number one. So better is important. Better definitely is important, important, but how are you going to get better is being consistent with it and not thinking, right, I can't post until I have the perfect post here that's going to go viral. Yeah. So I think consistency is so important. And, and you learn, like you start to learn and tweak and figure out what what works and what doesn't work so most important thing one is consistency and probably tied for one is understand who you're talking to so i think there's a lot of people talking to trying to talk to their peers when actually their target market is there is gen pop person who wants to be able to go for a run on the weekend yeah so that's that's a trap that we all fall into you know we all because you're probably consuming that content and then you're making your content look like that but it's not it's not applicable to the person um, that you're actually trying to speak to or attract. So consistency, understand who you're talking to and understand the journey that someone new would be coming in who's coming into your world is going to take. So where where do you want to bring them? So uh, like I want to bring I know that I want to buy someone to buy my program because not not to make a sale necessarily, but to get a customer and to get that cost, bring that customer kind of into my world and help them understand here's the things that here's the way I work. And here's like some of the things that you can play around with that I think will feel really good for your body. And that's a really good funnel for someone then to say, okay, I've got the program. I really liked it or I didn't like it. I'm not going to go any further. But I know for that person to come into my world, they, one, they will have hopefully heard me on a podcast or someone else shared something and they came onto my page and they noticed, right, he, this, this guy here is actually speaking a language that resonates with me and is familiar with me. And what, so what's the next, next step? So I think like there's a guy, a marketer called Ryan Dice, and he talks about marketing as, as he's absolutely brilliant, but he talks about marketing like dating. And, and people are like, you wouldn't go up to someone on the street and just say, okay, do you want to go home and into bed? Like <laughs> you would have to, you'd have to nurture them along and nurture the relationship. And I think a lot of people are doing that on social media where it's just like, they're not offering any value or any consistency, but they're expecting people to just sign up for their new $10,000 program before they've given them anything first. So offer value, be consistent and understand who you're talking to. I love it. That's great advice. Okay, last but not least, number six, what's next for David Gray? What are you up to? What are you working on? What are you excited about? Anything. 
it changes on a daily basis. We're at like <laughs> a weird, a weird transition point. So we yeah. are working on thinking about working on like. A, so we're gonna really we're gonna start to do some live classes. I think online for people who are. Well, I'm actually in my gym here, my new gym and my my new clinic. So that's that's number one, I should say. I'm looking forward to getting some pretty cool athletes to come out here and spend a little bit of time here. So that's one. And then we're also working on releasing some li- like live subscription classes where people can actually. Yeah, I want I, I, I understand I've done the program, but I want more detailed cues and the breathing stuff or whatever it is. And I want to just have some accountability where I do it. I join the class every week or twice a week or whatever it is and, and do that and build a little community around that. And then the third thing is we're work we're gonna work on a little bit of more of an educational platform, I think. So there's I just I've I've been doing too many one on one calls with coaches and therapists <laughs> who are who are basically asking the same questions again and again mm. and as you know like if you want to be able to scale anything and to give people the best value possible i think a course or something like that would be will be quite good so that's probably the next six to twelve months of our of our world being planned out but again it changes on a daily basis so uh that's why i have kira my my partner she's the she's like the operations I have, I'm like, I have my, cl- my head in the clouds and, and change my mind on a daily yeah. basis. And it's like, okay, we're going to do this. We're going to do this. And she's like, you said 10 other things yesterday. So she's, she's keeping my feet on the ground. I love it. I love it. Well, David, man, really appreciate your time today. It was great catching up with you and finally meeting you. Where can my listeners find out more about you and all the great work you're doing? Probably Instagram is the best place, Mike. I think uh, David Gray Rehab, G-R-E-Y. And the website is the same, davidgrayrehab.com. So either one of those work. And um, I hope I didn't waffle on too much. No. Uh, Thank you very, very much for having me on. I really enjoyed the chat. And uh, it's nice to join join the list of all 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 your great guests. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, man. friend that does it for this week's episode with david really hope you enjoyed it i felt like when i was crafting the questions for this show i honestly didn't know where to take it because david has so much great information he's got you know instagram posts and he's got thoughts on ankles knees hips spines shoulders so it was really hard for us to kind of whittle that down and focus but i think just diving in and taking a deep dive into the knee was probably the best way to do it. So if you enjoyed this episode and you want me to do another one with David, I would love to hear from you and hear your thoughts on what you'd like to hear us cover. So with that being said, I do have one favor to ask. If you're not already, please take two seconds out of your day and subscribe to the podcast. doesn't matter where you consume shows. It could be the iTunes store, Google Play, Spotify, Uh, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon, wherever you consume podcasts, go there right now, subscribe to the show so that you know each and every week when a new episode drops. So my friend, as always, thank you so much for your support. I truly love and appreciate you. And we'll be back soon with our next episode. Take care.